You could be moving locations. You could have a newfound spiritual or religious awareness that actually starts to creep in in this era. Um, these are the things that happen. So there's so many transitions that are happening. This is why we call this middle essence now. Uh, it's like adolescence. Like adolescence. Oh, essence, yeah. Adolescence is, you know, like the, it's the life stage in between childhood and adulthood. And middle essence is the life stage between adulthood and elderhood. Well, hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. Can you hear the rain hitting the skylights, dropping from those big redwood trees? It's quite an amazing time to be in Northern California. If you walk outside the front door, it smells like you're in a Christmas candle. So I'm very happy today to be introducing you to Chip Conley. Uh, Chip is a New York Times bestselling author, a hospitality maverick who helped Airbnb's founders turn their fast-growing tech startup into a global hospitality brand. In his book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, he shares his unexpected journey at midlife from CEO to intern, learning about technology as Airbnb's head of global hospitality and strategy, while also mentoring CEO Brian Chesky. He's the founder of the Modern Elder Academy, where a new roadmap for midlife is offered at a beautiful oceanfront campus in Baja California Sur in Mexico. And he serves on the board of Encore.org and the advisory board for the Stanford Center for Longevity. You can find him at Chip Conley, that's C-O-N-L-E-Y.com. So uh, we talk a lot today about what it means to be curious and relevant and excited as you move into midlife. And this was recorded live. Uh, it's the first time and maybe the second time since COVID that I've actually been able to sit in a room with someone and have that good bouncing energy of looking in each other's eyes and seeing what arises next. And he is such a sparkling, radiant person. Uh, so if you get a chance uh, to visit or participate in the programs in Baja, that would be amazing. But in the meantime, check out this conversation, check out his books, and I think there are even some online programs if you can't travel to Mexico. You've probably seen some variation of that Hunter S. Thompson quote, life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. Uh, that has been modified, you know, slide in to home base with strawberries in one hand and champagne in the other or chocolate and wine or whatever. But you know, this idea uh, that Hunter wrote about in the Proud Highway Saga of a Desperate Southern Gentleman is universal, you know? We don't know what's after life in the body. Uh, I was just watching the Louis Schwartzberg movie, Gratitude Revealed. Uh, it's like a mini meditation, 15 minutes of it in the morning, or watch the whole thing. You know, if you can watch it and not cry, uh, that's pretty stunning because it just would take a lot to resist the joy, the sheer joy, the sheer magnificence, the variety of human experience and all walks of life that he displays in the film. But there's one piece in there from the head of the Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco, which is a super open, diverse church. And you know, I'll paraphrase what the minister said, but it was, it was like, look, I, I don't want people to be coming to church to think about like going to heaven or avoiding hell. I, I want them to come and feel belonging and connection in this life, in this body, right now, serving people, uh, singing, 
feeling, dancing, crying, emoting, you know. And Glide is an amazing place. They, they serve millions of meals to people who cannot afford to feed themselves, to people who run out of money by the end of the month because they're on social security or they're retired or to people who are homeless or just, you know, really actively doing what Neem Curly Baba told us to do, which is to love everyone, feed everyone, and remember who you are. So with that in mind, it's a nice introduction. Please enjoy this conversation with Chip Conley. So glad to see you. I've, I've been following this modern elder academy movement for yes. the last few years now. When, when did you start that? Started it in started it 2018. And it really came out of my experience at Airbnb. Mm. I uh, was the modern elder at Airbnb. That's what they called me. <clears throat> I didn't necessarily like that at first. It's <laughs> like, what is a modern elder? And they said, the modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. Oh, and when I, I heard that. that, I was like, okay, that definitely describes me, I hope. And uh, so after seven and a half years helping the founders, you know, in the early days and create the company it is today, I decided I wanted to create the world's first midlife wisdom school, a place that's dedicated to helping people reimagine and repurpose themselves. So <clears throat> that's how it came about. And the first campus is in Baja, about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas. And uh, now we have a second and a third campus opening in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I kind of remember that as this long, low-slung Pacific beach, super easy to learn to surf, really stunning space. Yeah. I mean, elders, you know, I I remember growing up and like, respect your elders. It was sort of a a mandate. I don't like that. But there's this, you've turned it into kind of an invitation, like uh, to become, to give yourself permission to age in a different way. Yeah, it's less about reverence and more about relevance. <laughs> and uh, like, I like wordplay. Um, so relevance speaks to the idea of like, okay, you may have learned a few things along the way. We may have, I define wisdom as metabolized experience that leads to distilled compassion. And, you know, that's a valuable asset. Yeah, let's it's, just break that down. Like, yeah. um, There's experience, which can be overwhelming and have trauma and like warp you. So what do you mean when you say metabolized experience? So metabolized experience means that you have, we all have experience. So mm. let's start with that. Mm. The more experience you have, you could have, either have scars and wounds that haven't really, you haven't made sense of and that actually distort who you are, or you actually metabolize them mm. and they make you better. Mm. Um, and better in whatever way we define better. And so long story short is that's a metabolizing experience is a form of wisdom. The second part of that that um, definition though is if it's just met- metabolized experience alone without some kind of social good attached to it is not wisdom. Wisdom going back thousands of years has always been a social good. So metabolized experience just for your own selfish benefit, not good enough, that's not wisdom. That means you're that means you're savvy. Someone can be savvy, and that's different than wise. Well, it sounds like a core component of wisdom is being aware that you exist in a field of other people. Correct. And so, if you're receiving for the self alone, right. interesting. Yeah. So the the metabolism experience. I think people get that piece. The part. Just what is distilled compassion? Yeah. So distilled compassion speaks to the idea of compassion. We know is when you can both have care and feeding of other people in terms of emotionally understanding what they're going through. But if you're universally compassionate, which is a beautiful thing to be, you're like the Dalai Lama, 
and that's wonderful. Most people can't, don't, not can't. Most people don't have that skill set. So to be distilled compassion means you know what this particular person needs at this particular moment, and it's sort of customized. And to distill down all of the compassion you could offer to just what that person needs right now, mm-hmm. that's what distilled compassion is. So metabolized experience that leads to distilled compassion. So so you're right. As we age, if we get it right, we have more of that wisdom. And therefore, the question is, what do you do with it? And how do we look at it as a positive as opposed to a negative? And generally, the you know Western culture that we're in has looked at aging as a negative. We have anti-aging creams and anti-aging products. Mm-hmm. We don't have anti-gay products. We don't have anti-black products. But we do have anti-aging products, which suggests that it, like age, ageism is the last socially acceptable kind of bias you can have. And so if it's so woven into the culture, the question is how do we help people reframe their relationship with aging? Because Becca Levy from Yale has shown that when you actually reframe your relationship with aging from a negative to a positive, you gain seven and a half years of additional life. Hmm. So, so that's part of what we do at MEA. Uh, we have a campus, but we also have online programs, and then we'll soon have a second and third campus. When you're when people come to you, are they are they doing some of that alchemizing of the mm-hmm. a prior experience there and doing the distilling work? Like, how, right. how would a program? What would be your suggestion for the first program to try? Well. We have workshops year-round in Baja. Mm-hmm. Um, let's not even focus on Santa Fe yet because we're not open there yet. If someone wanted to just taste test it, I would say one of our online programs, One on there's an eight-week course on uh, purpose, and there's a six-week course on transitions. Mm-hmm. That's probably the way to just like put your toe in the water. Are those the two motivations that mostly bring people? Like, yeah. like I have what I'm seeing, I'm 56, so what I'm seeing Look in a lot of girl. my... Thank you. That's all those anti-aging creams, you know, right? And and what I'm noticing, particularly on my male friends, is this sense that their life hasn't amounted to what they thought it would amount yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I'm looking at them, going like, "You've had all these experiences. You've had children. You've you've made a living. You've lived. Your body shows it." But there's like a sadness yeah. in them. Disappointment equals expectations minus reality. <laughs> so there's a lot of people with high expectations, and they may the reality may have been incredibly impressive, but if their expectations still exceed their reality, yeah. there's a disappointment. Um, generally speaking, people in their 40s go through that. Now, mm-hmm. you can do it in your 50s, too, and you can do it any time in life. But it's really noticeable between 45 and 50. Okay. This is the uh, low point. Again, all these are averages, but on the U-curve of happiness, where people actually lose their life satisfaction from about 22 to about 45 to 50, and then it starts going up again in the Mm. 50s and beyond. Mm. So it's around 45 to 50 that a lot of people actually are in that stage where Mm. they're saying, geez, you know. um, Better get it together. Yeah, or my life has not amounted to what I wanted it to be mm. and that's when you know Brittany Brown my friend and I we've, we've, she's talked about the idea of the great midlife um, unraveling and I was like really nobody wants to unravel that sounds like you're losing your mind she says Chip have you ever looked at the dictionary definition for ravel a ravel is something that's so tightly wound you cannot you not, cannot get it untied and that is what a lot of people feel like yeah around 45 to 50 well, you're um, in that middle of your career and you've your got kids. Spinning and, parts. Mm. Yeah, exactly. 
And also, it's the time for both men and women that their hormones start to drop, like test, andro, andropause and, begins. And, andropause, good for you, girlfriend. That's a good thing. <laughs> like, a lot of people don't know what andropause is. It's the male version of menopause. It's much more subtle. It's much less, I would just say, as my, my female friends say to me, especially our, my co-founder of MBA, Christine Sperber, she says, like, Chip, you know, you talk about andropause, but menopause is much harder. And it really is. I think menopause is much harder. But well, there's a perimenopause is that same as like right. the andropause. And yeah. then the menopause itself is like, holy shit, what happened to my body? I yeah. don't own it anymore. Yeah. So you've got the chemical stuff and, and you're wound up in a tight little ball. Well, this is so back to your question about purpose and transitions. What What's happening on the transition side is people go through so many transitions in midlife. Mm. There is, there's the menopause and andropause. There's parents passing away. There's empty nest if you have kids. There may be a divorce. Mm. Uh, you may have a, a medical diagnosis that's scary. Uh, I found out I had prostate cancer in my 50s. You could be moving locations. You could have a newfound spiritual or religious awareness that actually starts to creep in in this era. Um, these are the things that happen. So there's so many transitions that are happening. This is why we call this middle essence now. Uh, it's like adolescence. Like adolescence. Yeah, yeah. Adolescence is, you know, like the it's the life stage in between childhood and adulthood, and middle essence is the life stage between adulthood and elderhood. With elderhood lasting forty years, maybe elderhood just means, relatively speaking, you're older than the people around you. Mm. And so, yeah, a lot of transitions happening, and and purpose is the other one. The, the course that uh, people like uh, as an online course. Because it's often the time in life when people say, take a step back and say, I've been doing the same thing for a long time. I want to do something new. Do you find that when people are investigating purpose, they go back to something that they like got, they get back in touch with what their purpose was when they were young or that they really dive in and find something new awakening in them? It's, it's both. It's I mean, both. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's a singular answer that's Don't true. I need a template? Can I just have the answer? Yeah, there's no template. <laughs> I mean, there, you know, in our course, we help people to understand how do you find that purpose. Right. We're very possessive about purpose in, in, in the U.S. It's almost like this possession that if somehow everybody else has one and you lost yours, you know, in the, in the, in the grocery store, um, <laughs> you left the person that's like your purpose in the, in the grocery store. You lost me purpose. Yeah. There's yeah. a, there's an old red skeleton bit where, where Santa's talking to a Christmas tree and the tree's like, Santa Claus, I don't know me purpose. Uh, and so it's a very funny bit, but I'll, I'll send wow, it to you. Send it to me. I yeah. love that. Um, yeah, we're, we're in an era where, uh, helping people to understand that the verbs more important than the noun. How do you find purposefulness uh, in uh, what you're doing? Uh, because actually that will create the breadcrumbs uh, that bring you to a purpose. And also allows it to evolve. Yeah, yeah. So I think those are those two courses are online. And then in terms of coming to MEA, uh, to the actual campus, it's like going to Mecca. I mean, it's sort of like a an opportunity to be in a week-long workshop with 20 to 24 other people where you go deep and it's revealing and it's inspiring and at the end of the day it's transformative and empowering in terms of creating a blueprint for the next couple decades of your life and you have this member what i liked about this uh, is the membership component that you're not like a one-off done you're you yeah. found your purpose now you're you developing going. it you're merging it and you're sort of dropping so into a community program, yeah and as members we also call members uh the alumni, if you, it's not like going, I was on the board of the Esalen Institute for huh. a long, long yeah. time. And you go to an Esalen workshop and there's no curriculum. Esalen doesn't have a curriculum that has teachers and teachers teach their thing. Now Esalen has an ethos for sure of yeah. what, what it's like there, but there's no curriculum. So MEA has a curriculum 
and as guest teachers. And when you leave and you have, you're a graduate and you get a certificate, it's a piece of art, and now you're part of the alumni program and, and the member programs if you want to be even more involved. And what that does is it means that like this is ongoing. Uh, we call it not lifelong learning, but long life learning. How do people live, how do people learn how to live a life that's as deep and meaningful as it is long? And it sounds too like making friends in midlife. Oh my gosh. Which is a huge part of it. part of it, yeah. you know, because there's, well, what happens with the spinning plates era when your life is full of efficiency is, you know, you may have some friends that you stay in cl- close touch with, but it's sort of hard to make new friends. It doesn't mean that you aren't lovable and friendly. It just means that you don't have time to make new friends. And then all of a sudden things start to open up a little bit. And for some people, it's like a muscle that they have to relearn. But also for others, it's like, okay, well, I don't want to have friends like the ones I've had. Right. Because I, what their, their value system doesn't necessarily fit my evolving value system. I have an evolving value system that's more X, Y, or Z. And my friends are more A, B, and C. You kind of go into this valley. <clears throat> you, and, little... and, and then it can be a lonely valley. Yeah. And, and we know, all know that loneliness is you know, pretty much an epidemic these days. Uh, and so that's a, a big part of it. It's part of the reason why we have 26 regional chapters as well. That's beautiful. Yeah. And that did you expect that? No. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you this. I, Christine, when we, we started it, we did it uh, for six months, 13 different workshops just to test it, to see like, what well, you know, was there a, a demand for this? And we found there was. And the number one piece of advice we got from the people who came to our beta workshops was you need an alumni program, which was a good sign that people liked the experience, but also a real sign that people want to build relationships with those that they build, that they get vulnerable with, and that they they build a roadmap with, and they want someone to be like, you know, driving alongside them. Yeah, I I think the, the... I get a lot of women in our community who are in the free period. We're calling it the free period after yeah. menopause, and they're they all most of them are triggered to change uh, by their children leaving home yeah. and this free time that opens up. And this thing about their old friends are just a lot of them aren't growing in the same way. That's right. So no, it's fun. And, and you know, like Esther Esther Perel's here yeah. in, in, at Summit. We're, we're doing this from Summit, and she's teaching at, at MEA this May. And I think that you know. Uh, 65% of the people who come to MEA are women. So there's a growing community of women who are asking themselves, how do I do my 50s differently than I've done any other decade of my life? and uh, Or 60s. Uh, and I, I think that this idea of, of freedom and maybe even some time affluence, we know what time poverty is like, but time affluence is a real opportunity I what haven't heard. Do? I haven't gotten there yet. I don't know. Because yeah. <laughs> every time I have a little spaciousness, I'm like I'm a stuffer in the yeah. gardens. They they say that the that the response to overwhelm and trauma is to speed up, to get hard, to go numb. You know, and that that that's, basically the, that's the advice. No, that's that's literally that's what people do. Yeah, and no. then to heal, the only way to heal is to slow down and soften. That's it. Slow down and soften. And so you, it seems to me like you're creating yeah. an environment for people to kind of pause and do that. This is like uh, Mary Catherine Bateson uh, was the uh, daughter of Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, two amazing intellectuals. And she says that what we have in midlife is the opportunity to create an atrium. Um, mm, that's an atrium. beautiful. She says that like, the way we 
tend to look at as society at additional longevity that we have uh-huh. is like two extra bedrooms on the backyard. But she says it's not really that. that. That makes it sound like you're just old longer. Yes. But instead, what she says, what we need to do is create a new blueprint so you create an atrium in the middle of your life, an atrium that creates light and space and and the opportunity for reflection. Because it's around 50 years old or early 50s or sometime in this era where you really do need to get a little more intentional and conscious about how you want to live your next 30 to 40 years. And so that's what we offer. It's a midlife atrium. There's a, you know, David Ewing Duncan, he, um, he, he's, you know, he's in the San Francisco okay. intellectual oh, bio. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I think yeah. David Duncan. David Duncan. Yeah, David. Okay, yes. So he, he talked about longevity because he did this big survey. How long would you want to live? Yeah. If you could, 110, 130, whatever. And that you get like 10 extra years in puberty and 10 yeah. in, in, in young adulthood and that it's spread out throughout your life. Yeah. And it's actually panning out. Like you see the age of initial marriage or first birth is all extending. Yeah. So yeah. I love that atrium. Actually, well, I love I mean, the idea of life having an atrium. Your whole life is yeah. like coming from this generative, yeah. spacious inner yeah, space. The, the idea of emerging adulthood. I mean, we used to say, okay, here's the part that's interesting. It used to be that age 13 or so, when you, got, you hit puberty, you were an adult. And then adolescence as a an era only got coined in 1904. Prior to that, there was no such thing as adolescence. There were teen years, but teen years were adulthood. Okay, so now it's true. In 1904, the book came out and adolescence became a thing. So all of a sudden, we moved from 13 to 18, 18 being adulthood. Then we're now in a stage where 18 to 30 is something called emerging adulthood. And it's it's sort of an era of just saying, you know, you're not quite an adult yet. Your brain is not fully formed in terms of uh, a lot of the the growth that happens in a rapid way, you know, in your younger years. Uh, Often you're not financially in a place where you have a lot of independence. Yeah, particularly now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's an element of like, wow, everything's getting extended, including life. I think what it, you know, what it also means is that midlife, you know, for many people, which is an era that might have in the past, you think, oh, by the time you're 60, you're not in midlife anymore. Well, you know, sociologists now say midlife is 35 to 75, so it's a marathon. Well, I think you've talked about, we've got to talk about permission to age, being an elder versus being elderly is mm-hmm. another one of your things that we talked about is this all there is so you write a lot of books and wisdom at work form the basis for this curriculum do you see a book coming out of this one is there one in the works there's one in the works um so i have i also love writing i have a daily blog called wisdom well so i get to write a blog post every single day and and, um, that's that's quite a discipline but the next book i have now just signed a contract uh with my publisher uh it's called learning to love midlife and whereas Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, was really my story of being the modern elder at Airbnb for seven and a half years. Um, and what does it mean in the workplace to be, you know, how you create intergenerational collaboration? The, this new book is really more about like helping to explore why midlife has such a bad brand. Because what's the word that you associate with midlife? Crisis. Yeah, exactly. Of course. 98% of people say that's the, the primary word that it is attached to midlife. So if midlife has ex- basically a brand that's all about crisis, what if it's a chrysalis instead? Yeah. What if actually, Midlife chrysalis. Midlife Beautiful crisis. wordplay, man. That's exactly. So you, got, <laughs> so you got the butterfly. Midlife for the butterfly is the chrysalis. Okay. It is dark and gooey, but it's also where the transformation happens. Mm. So what if that was true for humans as well? I feel that I have a model in my head that sort of up till about 40, 
you're still sort of in the fecund reproductive you know thing and then when you're over 65 you're like gray and cool you know then you're like the cool cute adult grandpa it's in between it's It's like oh you're like nowhere you're like not there yeah i love that no i mean and the middle and the u curve of happiness research does show that yeah but their research shows 45 and 50 being sort of the low point but sometimes actually goes to early 50s yeah and again your mileage may vary. I mean, it, these are averages. This, this, and the reality is, that was my model, but this is actually the best time of life. I, my 50, I'm 62 now. My, my 50s was by far my favorite decade of my life. Wow. So, who knew? Who knew that, okay, on the other side of 50, you know, I would enjoy it that much. Uh, so that's great. And I, and I would just say for a lot of people who are sort of looking at this era, just know that, yeah, one of the things that happens in this era of midlife is you have the opportunity to start editing. Yeah. The first half of your life is about accumulating. The second half of your life is about editing. And the key is to start looking at what is not working in my life that I need to edit. And don't make a, you know, a, a rash decision on this, but spend some time figuring that out and then make some good decisions. And to actually get to a place where your life feels a little bit lighter because you have less obligations or you have less stuff or you have less ego attached to fill in the blank, it's amazing what starts to actually generate in yourself when you realize that you no longer are carrying such a heavy load. That's We beautiful. call it the Great Midlife Edit at, at, at MEA. It is an actual ritual in the first 24 hours once people have actually come to, to the campus that we do. And it helps them to sort of say, okay, I can breathe now because I'm no longer carrying all this baggage. You travel a lot. You travel the whole world. Do you, did you ever encounter in the Asian traditions, the like Indian traditions about the forest years? The forest dweller. The yeah. forest dweller, right? Yeah. So, so is there? Are you seeing sort of an archetypal evolution in this edit that kind of matches? Good question. I mean, the forest dweller is part of the Hindu tradition, and and it's sort of a stage of life. Yeah. I would say, in the Western tradition, not specific to a religion, but more to just society secularly. I do think this modern elder idea is a potential way to think of this era in the sense that if you're as curious as you are wise, how are you serving? You know, the forest dweller is all about going back and being yeah. in nature and because ultimately you are nature. Right. You actually, right. your ashes, you are, you, you, you are part of the soil. But I believe that there's this element of, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Eric Erickson, developmental psychologist who said, I am what survives me. And I think mm. there's an era of life where we are called in a sort of legacy kind of way to say, how am I supposed to show up in the world to help provide things that will survive me? Whether it's our children, whether it's a mentee, whether it's a book we write, whether it's a business we start, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, whether it's a park we helped get created in our neighborhood, um, there are things we can do that are, will survive us where our ego is no longer attached. Mm. Um, you know, that's the other thing is I think the, Carl Jung and Richard Rohr both said the same thing, which is the first half of our life is about um, the primary operating system is our, our ego for all kinds of good reasons. Mm. And it's around midlife that we start to have this primary operating system change to our soul. And therefore, if we, but, but no one gives us an operating manual for how to operate this new operating system. And so part of what midlife is about is learning how to, you know, move from, from stick shift to automatic i want to like i want so many questions like do you think that's a neo a, a, a neuro 
chemical kind of thing, like brain development, like the neofrontal cortex developing in 25. Is there something that's going on in the brain that's making that change, or is it cultural? I think it's, I think it's both, but I think the brain side of it is the brain does make some serious changes around midlife where um, it sh- starts to shrink a little bit, and we start learning how to do four-wheel drive of the brain. And we have much more fluidity from left brain to right brain. And it's all, this is all very well documented. Mm. Whereas when we're younger, we tend to be more secular or more on one side or the other. Whereas we get older, you have lyrical and logical all in the same sentence. Blend, like Hesed and Gavora, they sort of like... That, that systemic thinking, um, the idea of being able to connect the dots mm. is something we get better at as mm. we age. Um, so yeah, I think it is the brain. I mean, it's not exclusively that. I think it's also cultural too. I love your invitation to experience midlife in a completely different way. Uh, You've been very good in your life at finding excellent collaborators. Mm. And your team, um, this Christine person, looks like a complete, like totally fun, first of all. Uh, Just so can you talk about the people who started with you and why you chose them or how you found each other? So that's a great great question. Um, So Christine Sperber is uh, one of my co-founders. She threw my 55th birthday party uh, for me seven years ago so I knew she was great at throwing parties and great she's she's our chief experience officer she just knows how to create a hospitality experience mm. she has created uh, two really successful resorts and hotels in the Baja area where we are so I mm. wanted to have her at my side because I just knew she's a great hospitality veteran she knows how to create unique experiences and then Jeff Hamui my other uh, co-founder uh, is somebody who He's probably the best facilitator in the world I've ever met. And he was actually a student in the very first beta week we had. And he clearly needed to be the teacher, not because he was like elbowing people aside, but because he believed that wisdom is not taught, it's shared. Mm. And he actually helped create the environment for people to actually see, wow, I, I want more of what he has, because he was really curious. Uh, and um, so, between the two of them, he's our chief product and content officer, and she's our chief experience officer. So I've got them, got a bunch of other wonderful collaborators on the team as well. And, you know, when you're doing something that's important work that people love, um, you attract great people. You're doing something with Michael. How? Oh, my gosh. We're doing Generations Over Dinner. That's I, right. Like, it's a death over dinner thing, but now in this. That's right. Talk about so this. Michael also, uh, he and I taught a workshop at MEA called Love, Love Death, and Human Connection a few weeks ago that was beautiful. Um, but Michael uh, created Death Over Dinner, uh, and over a million people around the world have actually done a death dinner. Uh, and it's an opportunity to have people at the table and have a conversation, a deep and rich conversation around the subject of death. Um, Time out on that. If you're listening and you haven't, like, just d- do a Google Doc and tell your kids what you want and then bring them over for dinner and try talking about it. Yeah. Uh, it, it anyway, there's a lot of good guidelines on the Death Over Dinner site to, yeah. to have that conversation. Well, we said to Michael, listen, why don't we create a Generations Over Dinner? Oh, nice. And so the idea was Generations Over Dinner is a way for people to um, have conversations that are deep and meaningful around societal problems, around purpose, around love and relationships. So how do we sit at a dinner table with five, six, seven, we've had seven generations at the table uh, mm-hmm. already, and actually have that kind of conversation that is best suited to be like a generational potluck. 
this curiosity, I have so much curiosity at what it's like to be 25 right now. Yeah. You know, what they're seeing, what they're experiencing, how it's different. There's that Gibran poem mm. where he says, you know, you're, you can you can uh, seek not to make them like you. Yeah. Uh, you can walk in their shoes, but mm. don't try to make them walk in yours. Yeah. And like, how do you really understand that they've grown up with a totally different lens? It's like this humility of time. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's time for you to have a twenty-five-year-old mentor. I am going to. I'm going to do my transition. I'm yeah. going to. I'm going to try this. Yeah. I have. You know. You. I know you have a son, and and they're. I have adult children, yeah. and yeah. they're. They have their perspective, but I think it would be better to get um, people yeah. I don't know. Listen, I think me- mentorship with family members is hard because there's a lot of baggage attached, uh-huh. especially if uh-huh. it's a, if it's a son or a daughter. So this is beautiful. Let's make that distinction. Generations over dinner isn't about intergenerational families, transgenerational it, it acceptance. Can. It can be, but this it, is something. This is meant to be actually people who uh, maybe in the, in the workplace know each other uh. or live near each other or f- are just friends. Often because you don't, most people don't have five generations yeah. that are close friends. It's more like, okay, I've got this friend who's younger. They're going to invite a few friends. And then I've got this friend who's older, and they're going to have some friends. And you end up at a table where you don't know everybody. Mm. And that's actually great. It's actually mm. quite liberating. One of the challenges with doing Generations Over Dinner with families, which we do. I mean, people do it a lot. But with families, there's all these rigid identities that people are I know, inhabiting. I know. So. They can't see you as fresh. That's a good skill to cultivate. Yes. It's like seeing the people around you as new. Um, we have a couple minutes. Do you want to, um, do you have any tips for how to cultivate curiosity since that? If I was doing a word count on our yeah. conversation, that one's probably among the top three words. Well, I think curiosity, first of all, curiosity and wisdom is this beautiful alchemy. Um, and we've talked a lot about wisdom, so let's talk about curiosity for a moment. Curiosity is requires a few things. Number one is you have to have the space for it. Mm-hmm. Lots of companies say they want to be curious, but really what they want to be is creative and innovative, which are the, which are the results of curiosity. Curiosity is like the elixir that creates the creativity and innovation. So just know that curiosity often means asking bigger questions. And therefore, if you have 30 minutes for a meeting, curiosity probably isn't going to be able to be there at the meeting with you. So give it time. Number two is be open to being the most curious one in the room, which is usually the person who's asking the questions. Mm. So a lot of times in in, in, uh, environments, People want to be the smartest person in the room, and that's not usually the curious, that's not the one asking the questions. Mm. So asking questions is critical. Learning how to feel comfortable being a beginner, um, and that is an essential skill. It's one of the things we teach at MEA is how do we help you become a beginner again? Mm. And that has a lot to do with going from a fixed to a growth mindset. When you have a growth mindset, you're focused on focusing on improving yourself, and as such, you are able to be in a position where you're much more able to show up in, in the world and ask questions and, and, and know that in that question asked in asking the questions you're creating a catalyst um, and that's the, that to me is a, a huge value of a modern elder is by asking questions they're catalytically opening up doors and possibilities well I believe in everybody out there kind of imagining being curious, being present, and loving this stage of their life. Yeah. And I hope that there's some re- wonderful resources at uh, on the MEA website. We'll put that in the show notes, including a downloadable book on the yeah. uh, roadmap, a transitional yeah, roadmap or something. Yeah, exactly. great. So. Thank you so much for everything you that you've done. Yeah, it's great to reconnect. 
Well, mes amis, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation with Chip and in this larger inquiry about what we want to bring forth at this stage of our life. You know, desire is such a powerful fuel. It really is this process of listening to what wants to be born in us. And it's not a one-time thing. You don't like just, oh, I'm turning 50 and I'm going to ask this question. It's January 1st and I'm going to ask this question. It's kind of a consistent listening uh, and attunement to what we want to bring forth in our life. So I will count on you to reach out and say hello and tell me what you're birthing, what your vision is for yourself at this time in your life. And if you'd like to join me over in the Rose Woman community on Facebook, we still are doing Facebook. Uh, There's about 5,000 women in that group. Or come and talk to me on Instagram at the.rose.woman and we can continue the investigation into what it means to be a modern elder, or just a modern wise person. I think I'll close today by offering you a yoga blessing, which is Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu. And it's a, you know, they chanted at the end of yoga class, Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu, uh, three times. And it means, it's generally translated to may all beings be happy and free. Uh, but Sukha, is this sweetness, sucrose, it's sukra, it's sugar. And, you know, so there's a quality of, you know, may you be living in this sort of sweetness of life. And then there are other versions of it where they close with, may all beings, we be happy, may I be happy, may all beings be happy, so that you include yourself in the all beings. So yeah, I think I'll end with that. May you be happy, may you be free. May you live in the sweetness of this given life. 